Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So the doctor was like, your dad has, you know, lung cancer. It's metastasized to his brain. And he's he likely has six months to live. So the minute the doctor said he's going to die, that's when I started processing. Mm-hmm. And then when he did, I didn't feel anything. I was like a like a rock. Like I was not emotional. I was immediately getting into the work of making the funeral arrangements and contacting people that we needed to and working out the financial situation with the credit cards Mm -hmm. and just doing what I had to do. There was no like time to grieve in my eyes. Kareem Rahma was 20 years old then, barely an adult, but as the oldest of his siblings, the eldest son, he felt his dad's death meant everything was up to him. And he didn't just take over his dad's role in the family. Before long, he started to feel like he was him. It was uncanny. It took Kareem almost 15 years to realize what was really going on. I'm Eamon Ismail, and you're listening to Man Up. On this show every week, we tell honest stories about our lives and investigate where we get our ideas about what it means to be a man. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. In 1969, Sayyid Ahmed left his native Egypt and immigrated to New York. Less than a week later, he decided it wasn't his steez and made his way to Minneapolis instead. To describe Sayyid as an enigma would be an understatement. My dad was classically handsome. Mm. Like, think like... Omar al-Sharif meets Robin Williams. (laughs) He was like a real man's man looking person, like like rugged, Mm -hmm. you know? And he had the most coveted facial feature. Yes. For most Arabs, which I think is the eyes. His eyes were hazel, but olive skin, nice, regular, good old Arab schnoz. He had like an Afro type of situation. Mm -hmm. Did he pass any traits on to you? Yeah, we. I mean, everyone thinks I look exactly like him. And that sounds now like really... <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. Whatever. It doesn't. So last time I was in Egypt, my mom was like, do you want to go visit your aunt Noelle? That's her name. Mm-hmm. She lives in the middle of literally nowhere. Yeah. But I said yes this time. And I walked in and she started crying because I look like him so much. She really was like, thought she saw a ghost. Kadim showed me a photo of his dad. He's leaning up against a white car, wearing a tan jacket, tan pants, fedora, too cool to acknowledge the camera. 
Kareem's not lying. His dad was a handsome cat, but if the photo gave me a mental image, it quickly got more complicated. Tell me, tell me about your dad. Who was your, who was your dad? So my dad still remains to me a mystery. Mm. And he was a person that was super layered and like an onion. And you could never, ever, ever get to the center. You know, there was the public facing him, which was this guy that was the life of the party, Mm. super funny, super smart, super positive, tremendous exaggerator and storyteller. (laughs) And then there was the home dad who was really serious and really strict. Have you seen the movie Big Fish? Yes. My dad was like that. You know, I think this is probably where my own exaggeration comes from. I'm a known exaggerator as Mm -hmm. well Mm -hmm. amongst my group of friends. (laughs) I didn't know what was fact or fiction based on what he told me. Like, I really didn't know if he really did sleep in the desert one night and then got bit by a cobra. What? Uh, and then his friend had to suck the poison out and spit it, and then they went to the hospital. I don't know if that happened. You know, I've spent the last few years trying to really get a sense and a grasp on what is what was fact and what was fiction. So every time I go to Cairo, I ask questions to his last remaining sister. You know, I look through books, I look through old movies, I ask my mom questions, but the funny thing is she doesn't know either. It sounded like the reason why he exaggerated was to fulfill the person's fantasy that he was talking to. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, definitely an entertainer. Mm-hmm. Like someone who wanted other people to feel like their time was well spent. That there was a, a moral at every story. That there was a butt of every joke. Mm-hmm. That there was a punchline to life. And that we weren't just wasting time, but we were having a good time. Um, <laughs> That's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. and I love and that. He told me he was a stuntman in Egypt. And this recent time that I went to talk to his sister, I was like, was he a stuntman? She was like, yeah. He was like a famous stuntman. I found a YouTube clip where he's not a stuntman, but he's an extra in a movie with Abdul Halim. Shut up. I swear. He's just an extra that, like, he's just in the movie. I mean, but it's a Abdel Halim film. I know. For those listening, he's the most famous Egyptian actor, entertainer, singer. Ever. Ever, whoever lived. Yeah. But he was there. I looked it up on YouTube, and I saw my dad. Those stories are just, like, they're everywhere. He said he invented a color. What a mysterious man. Another weird story, like, he owned this plot of land in the Sahara Desert. Grew up in a farm country, but never was a farmer. And then was like, I'm starting a farm in the desert. In the desert. <laughs> And so he did, and I went there. There was he a family did. that lived on it, and he gave them like 10 acres of land and was like, this is yours. I'm not paying you money, but you can farm this yourselves. And he installed an irrigation system, and it was a real fucking farm. We came there once, and he was like, I have to show you these donkeys. I was like, what? You have donkeys? That's so cool. What? I was like, how'd you get them? He's like, I was driving down the road, and I saw this guy that had a donkey. And so I was like, hey, how much for that donkey? And he was like, well, you can't just buy one. You have to buy all three of them. So I bought all three of them. And now there are three donkeys on the farm. It's always a part of me that's like, did it go that way? Because that's the way he told the story. You saw the donkeys? And I saw the donkeys. And there were three of them. Yep. So like, oh man, who's to say that it didn't happen? It happened. It happened <laughs> that way. I'm a believer. But the way he made it seem is like it was a spontaneous. He made it more exciting. Yeah, he made it more interesting and more exciting. And he made it a story. 
You know, mm -hmm. what's life without stories? So talk to me about what happened to your dad. So we, we had a we had a good, you know, life, like I said. And then I was in college and he had been a smoker for mm -hmm. the whole time. Doctor asks, Sayed, do you smoke? He says no. Oh man. For years. Pretty much as long as I knew him, he said he didn't smoke, but he literally smoked a pack of cigarettes a day and he never got sick. Never saw him with a cold, never saw him with the flu. It's crazy. And then he's like, I need you to drive me to the Mayo Clinic. And at that point, I'm like, okay, weird, whatever. Like, sure. He needs to get some tests done. So we go to the Mayo Clinic. We went a couple times, like two or three times. And on one of the visits, the doctors rushed into the room. My dad wasn't in the room. It was just me. And then they broke the news to me that my dad had cancer. And I didn't know. At that point, I thought we were just doing tests. So the doctor was like, I remember this. He likely has six months to live. And, you know, at that exact moment, I kind of gave in to the idea that he was going to die. Like immediately. Yeah. You know, and I, and I honestly think that he did too. But in typical dad fashion he pretended that he was going to win the fight or that he had a fighting chance you know so wow. and again now this is one of those conversations where I don't know if he really believed he could beat it or not personally I don't think he did I think he was just going through the motions of what you're supposed to do when you get cancer but I think that he knew that nothing was going to happen that, that it was too late which it was Maybe he thought he was going to get less resistance that way. Yeah, probably. And he and he did, you know. He just kind of like passed the responsibility on to his doctors. And then that way he just did what he was supposed to do. He lived his last days in hospitals and going to chemo and radiation and all that stuff. And it was interesting. Like I'd never seen him this powerful being gets so like weak and become an old man mm. in a matter of a couple of months and then really like six months the day he just died um and that time is a tremendous blur to me you know it's like it takes a lot of energy to get access to that time in my own brain but it's almost like my brain has a mind of its own <laughs> and your mind and, has a mind yeah my mind has a mind and my mind's mind mm. is locked with a key and i don't have the key why do you think your mind is doing that i think it's a coping mechanism and i think it's a defense mechanism to guard myself from myself so how did you cope during that time and how did you cope after so i i think for me i'm like extremely real with myself mm. and like i said when the doctor said your dad's gonna die in six months i said yes he is i agree you know and i, th I think about that in comparison to a lot of other people 
who do believe that they have a fighting chance. And I could see that they believe it, you know? And and I guess I just accepted that he was going to die immediately, you know? I didn't even let the mirage of successful treatment get in the way. You know, I kind of like felt like I would rather just process his death before he died. So the minute the doctor said he's going to die, that's when I started processing. So it was six months before he actually died. Mm -hmm. And then when he did, I didn't feel anything. You've been preparing for it for six months. I was ready. And at that point, it felt like I knew what to do. So when you were filling his shoes, when you were becoming, can I say, the man of the house, did you need to be more like your dad? I think it was a natural occurrence. And again, I think even then, the decisions I made were out of necessity to choose yes or no, A or B. Mm. And my process at the time was to pick the fastest, just make a decision, right? right? Like for a long time, I prided myself on not mulling things over, on being able to make a decision. Right. Because it was, again, out of need and out of necessity, but it wasn't about what I thought was best. It was this reactionary. Everything was reactionary. It was about like putting my family ahead of myself. Mm. And so I never, I feel like I never really had the time or developed a sense of self, you know, until like my late 20s. That's when I felt like I could let go of, I guess, my, my responsibility to other people right. and start being responsible for myself. You know, I didn't look for someone else to fill the role. I just manifested kind of him in a lot of my decisions. It's like, what would my dad do? You know, and then I just Mm -hmm. acted on those decisions based on what I thought he would do. So there was no pressure from your family to become like the man of the house. It almost felt like because you felt that absence on your own, you knew that there was a space to be filled. And so there was no choice. There was absolutely no choice. It was like, it was not a consideration. But there feels like that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself, no? I mean, how do you cope with your life dramatically changing so quickly? And that, that's, that's, I didn't. That's didn't? The whole, that's the whole point is I didn't. So after, after my father passed away, my mom considered going back to Egypt to live there and kind of like have a semi-retirement. But she hated the apartment that we owned there. And this apartment was filled with treasure in the sense that every summer for pretty much my entire life, we'd gone there. It was just, it was frozen in time. And on the surface, it was old and ugly and antiquated. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it was a museum. And in my rush of decision-making, I literally cleaned house of the apartment i gave away i gave away everything i gave away literally everything there was like oil paintings dating back from the 70s that my dad had brought 
from the states that it was like clothing and jackets and hats and toys and movies and like you got rid notebooks of and notes everything I got rid of it all and I didn't even get rid of it in a way that showed any respect towards my own past and my own history. I got rid of it. Like I dumped it. I threw it away. I gave it away. And that is the biggest regret I have in my life, you know, Yeah. because I have so many questions about my own past where it's, it's fuzzy. You know, I have so many questions about my dad's past. I have so many questions about my family that and I threw away all the answers. <laughs> so now I have to live with this reality of knowing that what was once there is now no longer there and that it's actually my fault. You know, and I talked to my brother about this and he was like, I tried to tell you not to do it, but you wouldn't listen. You were like in your machine mode of like, get it done, get it done, get it done. Kind of was like, older brother man of the house like it's my decision yes or no it's my apartment i'm doing it you know and it wasn't it wasn't my apartment it was our apartment yeah it should have been our decision but i was acting out of this place of desire to make my mom more comfortable i felt like that's what i had to do i see i felt like i had no choice but that can i ask you something yeah why couldn't your mom make these decisions as the senior Because I think she had delegated so much to my dad mm. over all those years that she, like, she didn't know how to make decisions on her own. She wasn't barred from making decisions. She wasn't told she couldn't make decisions. I just think she left it to my dad to, like, always to be the man of the house, to always figure it out, to pay the bills, to do, to make sure we were going to get by, like, to make the decision whether we're going to take out a second mortgage to do a renovation on the house. Like, mm-hmm. when are we going to paint the basement? Like, those were all my dad's things, right? Mm-hmm. And when he died, I think my mom was afraid to make decisions. She had, like, true analysis paralysis. Where was this burden coming from? Did you feel like you needed to fill that that role, that gap that was left behind? Who are you filling it for? Were you filling it for yourself or... Were you actually filling it for your family? No, I really think I was filling it for myself. You know, I don't I don't think they needed me. You know, I didn't need to be there. I wasn't providing financial support. You know, I wasn't I wasn't living at home. I was living my life twenty five minutes away or twenty minutes away. But but this kind of idea of being mm-hmm. the man of the house, this idea of being the responsible adult was keeping me there. And every year I would tell my mom, I think I'm moving to New York, mom. Mm. I think I'm moving to LA, mom. I think I'm moving to San Francisco, mom. And then one day I said it, this is when I was 27. And she was like, sit down. I sat down (laughs) and she was like, you have to stop talking about this. It's been too long. You've been saying this for so many years. You have to go, just go. Just go. I'll be fine. And then I and then I did. That was like whoa. She pushed me over the edge, you know. And I think she could see I needed her permission. And when I moved, which was 2012, that's the first time I ever felt real freedom 
from guilt and burden, I think, in my whole life. What I'm hearing is the role that you filled in your family was who you were. There was nothing else beyond your responsibilities towards your family. So once you moved into a space where you knew for a fact that they weren't waiting on you or weren't stuck without you, that's when you finally were able to become anything else. Yeah, that's totally, totally true. And a lot of the stuff I've only recently started thinking about, like, you know, it happened naturally. But then you reflect back on those times when you were coming of age. Mm -hmm. I'm like a late bloomer. That's how I consider it. <laughs> like a really late bloomer. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like I really started becoming myself at age 27. At least for me, I see it the other way around. As someone who spent a lot of their, their childhood, you know, playing Nintendo, being the youngest kid in a family of, of six, I had two older brothers. And so as far as like, we called it the chain of command, I was on the very, very bottom. And because I had no say in any of the decision-making, I didn't really take my future seriously until like, until I had to, when I was like applying for colleges and I was like, oh shit, what am I going to do now? Did your ideas about what a man was supposed to be change after your father passed? Like this, this added responsibility of having to become the man of the house. I wonder how that influenced your ideas of who a man is supposed to be. I think in a way, the emotional relationship has changed. I think that for me, I saw manhood as a set of physical actions, of mm -hmm. staying put in a physical place, not leaving my family, being there for my family. Right you know, taking care of bills. Yeah. I thought that's what it meant. Problem solving. Yeah, problem solving. That's the perfect word. I think what has changed is the emotional aspect of it. Mm. That, that weakness is strength, you know, that it's okay to not know. It's okay to not have the answer. It's okay to say i'm not sure mm. what we should do you know it's not always about making the fastest choice or the quickest decision it's about considering what the decision will have an impact on in the future i really do want to understand what that morning looked like for you and i want to know exactly how you discovered that you hadn't yet mourned him until five years ago can you walk me through that i think it, it started with in my in my therapy you know it was a point of pride for me to say like i handled it so well he died and i just did what needed to be done mm. And I went to work and I graduated college and I took care of my family and I moved to New York and I did all these things. 
And she was, she kind of asked the same question, like, did you grieve him at all? And I was like, yeah, of course I grieved him. Grieved him my own way. (laughs) And I didn't let it bother me though. You just kept moving on, you know, like that's what he would want. Just keep going. And I think that morning started to manifest itself in expressing how I actually felt Mm. rather than hiding under the guise of what I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to act and how I'm supposed to react. I let kind of the words, you know, whether it's in my poetry or in my conversations with other people, I started to just be honest about the hole that he left and the gap and that it's like missing a limb, you know? Yeah. And and I don't, again, I'm going to relate this to all the other people out there, but I, I, I can't <laughs> fathom how, I guess I can fathom, but everyone else is out there walking around with missing limbs, you know? Like, I feel like ever since he, he passed, I've had a missing limb. Mm. I've had something missing, an intangible thing, you know? It's like there's a gap or a hole and when I look around and I know that everyone has lost someone, it's it's weird to me to think that everyone else has experienced something similar in some capacity, that we're all walking around with missing limbs, that we're all walking around with holes in us. Yeah. But it's weird that like we all just deal with it. You know, it's 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 just I think about it a lot that like you know someone your whole life and then you just don't know them anymore. Mm-hmm. They're just gone. And it just, it actually stops, you know? And and so for me, the processing and, and the grieving takes place in, in actually thinking about it, you know, like spending the time and, and thinking for an hour, two hours, you know, writing about it yeah. and not being afraid to be weak. I, I think that's the best way to put it is to like, to allow yourself to be weak, to allow yourself to feel upset and feel the hole and put your hand through it and say that's missing and that will always be missing so what i found to be really complicated and i feel like you might have something really smart to say on this so i'm going to share it with you i feel like i've met your dad i feel like i feel like the way you describe him the way that you carry him inside you I feel like he's here. I feel like I I got to know him through you. I mean, I think he is a part of me and I and I, I don't I don't remember the poem I wrote about it. Maybe I should pull it up, but I wrote mm-hmm. this poem that here, I'm just going to pull it up. Pull it up. But it has exactly to do with with that idea. Let's see here. So I wrote this poem on the 4380th day anniversary of my father's death oh my god (laughs) so 4380 days and the poem is called 4380 you came and went like a dream i can't remember but also can't forget or a moment of deja vu lingering too long and an already strange day when you were here i didn't understand what it meant that you were here but now i know 
because you aren't, and the absence of your soul is the absence of new memories. Inching forward, bit by bit, day by day, year by year, on the smell of your smell on my shirt. And I wonder if you're still here, or if it's just me. It feels like he might still be here, you know? Mm-hmm. In a way, it's like you feel like there's there's so much that I take from him, and I find myself asking, like, is it me or is it him? Like, am I making, you know? Yeah. It's it's weird to have a relationship with a ghost, you know, not a not a literal ghost in the sense that I see him here, <laughs> but like that he still plays such a major role in my life, you know. You said it a few times now. You yeah. said it in different ways that you felt like he became part of who you are. Yeah. He was making decisions through you. It's yeah. kind of it's kind of beautiful. I really feel like I got to meet him today. It's a ghost. He's here. Dad. Here at Man Up, we love getting emails and voicemails, and we'd love to hear from you too. Got thoughts about this week's episode, or maybe got an idea about what to talk about next? Leave a message at 805 626 8707. That's 805 ManUp07. Or email us at manup at slate.com. If you'd like this episode, please consider supporting the kid and leave a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Man Up is hosted and written by me, Eamon Ismail. Our producers are Danielle Hewitt and Cameron Drews. Our executive producers are Jeffrey Bloomer and Loan Liu. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcasts, and June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Make sure you're subscribed because next week we'll be back with more Man Up. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.